Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the legal ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. Today's episode is in collaboration with Malbec, a contract lifecycle management software provider. In this conversation, we're joined by Clock Talk co-host and director of legal ops at Peloton, Tommy Ferreira, a former general counsel at international tech company AudienceView, Chad Abood, and evangelist and director of legal at Malbec, Colin Levy. We get into my favorite topic, failures, and why understanding other people's pain is actually the path to success when implementing contract lifecycle management or CLM technology solutions. We'll talk about a few other best practices you can use as well. All right, let's get into it. Welcome, Colin, Chad, and Tommy to the podcast. We're getting into it today. We're talking about... Malbec, you came on board and sponsored this episode. So makes sense with Malbec behind us. We're going to talk about CLM, contract lifecycle management readiness. We're going to dig into things like best practices, but we're going to make it interesting because every time someone says best practices, a little piece of me dies and floats up to heaven. I mean, just like sometimes I love us. I love legal ops, but the terms and the lexicology, sometimes I just get tired of saying best practices. Can we go this whole episode without saying change management? Let's give it a try. Let's give it a try, but we can depth discuss change management. What about pretty good practices? Yeah, let's coin that. PGPs. <laughs> the, what, are the, what are the PGPs of contract lifecycle management readiness? Where do we begin this amazing topic? I know where to begin. Tommy, let's do a poll. How many of us of the four of us have failed implementing contract lifecycle readiness management solution? Colin's got a hand. I've got a hand. Tommy, have you failed? I don't think I've failed, but I don't. No, I'm not lying. I mean, do we want to define failure? I put them out there. They're out there. Yeah, yeah. Good question. How do we define failure? I define failure as... We're going live on July 1st and we messaged it to tens to hundreds to thousands of people and May 31st comes along and you're like, we're not ready. And you push the go live. That's a failure. That's one definition of failure. Colin, what's your definition of failure? My definition of failure is creating a solution that no one wants to use and that doesn't do what it was supposed to do. Oh, oh, big failure. He just went. Capital F. Capital F. Yeah. All caps failure, maybe. Chad, what's your definition of failure for contract lifecycle management implementation? Same, all caps failure? Mine's really on what to get reflected back from the stakeholders. Even if it works, they're annoyed or pissed. That's a failure to me. Getting it out there, cool. It works, cool. If people don't like it, they don't feel like they're part of the journey, that's a failure to me. I would say like maybe I've had like a 25% failure before. I'm not sure it's like full blown all caps yelling at you failure yet. Tommy, any of those definitions jar your memory? I went live when I was supposed to go live. (laughs) Okay. Show off. Okay. I'm sorry to show off, but I will say you do keep iterating. So I will say we will get to this later that you're not ever done. 
but I don't squarely fit into these definitions of failure. What? So Colin, you and I are the only ones that have run this thing into the wall. Apparently. And died and resurrected. It didn't just run to the wall, ran into the ground. (laughs) So when we talked before this call, before this podcast, when we were kind of riffing on best practices, Colin, you mentioned some buckets beneath best practices. You mentioned launching a team of cross-functional stakeholders, like building and launching that team with the implementation, assessing the current contract management processes, defining what your desired ones are. And you also, you guys mentioned, how do you go from documenting tech requirements, all of that pre-work to documenting a business case, creating a business case. So I want to lay those out as possible places we weave this conversation after we get through this failure bit and only 50% of us have failed. But if we pulled our audience listening right now, I would bet more than 50% of them have failed because this is all I hear about. When we go to clock and we go to other industry trade group conferences and meetups, everyone is talking about contract management solution failure. Tommy, why do you think that is? There's a lot of complexity. CLM is not just one thing, and it's not also just for you. It's for your whole org. And I don't know if maybe some of the complexities of what you're trying to deliver are lost on who you're trying to deliver it to. CLM, you're bringing in revenue. Your sales team's involved. Like you're really serving them in so many instances. You're on the buy side, your vendor management, you're talking about procurement. Sometimes some of the failure might be in not realizing you're not just serving the legal org, you're serving the enterprise. You're serving the company. This is a company-wide solution. Do we all agree? For sure. Oh, absolutely. Enterprise. Colin, take us back to Velcro, the technology, one of the greatest technologies to ever hit shoes, clothing, and other things that need to adhere together. You worked at Velcro and you ran contract management into the wall. Talk to me about that failure. (laughs) So I will say that it wasn't just entirely me. It was team of us that engaged in that failure journey. But Colin, you know that if you're on the job interview, it has to entirely be you. Oh, of course. For action and drama, nobody wants to hear the we story. (laughs) Now that we got that out of the way, talk about you. How'd you fail? So when I started that, journey back then. It was my first real kind of heavy duty job out of law school. And I kind of was learning kind of about what I was doing. From law school into a contract management implementation? Yeah. God. Yeah. It was a great learning experience. Needless to say, I have a lot to say about it. I was at the time very eager and passionate about technology. I just didn't know a whole lot about it in the legal context, but I was given the task by management to at least try to create a contract management solution for just non-disclosure agreements at the outset, because those popped up all the time. In the manufacturing context, they're very important because we're dealing with pretty proprietary manufacturing processes and access to pretty proprietary information relating to what we made and how it was used and all that stuff. So we started it kind of from the point of, well, we know what we want to do here in that we want to automate this sort of the creation in the review of NDAs. And that was kind of the basis for creating the solution. The problem though, is that we went about creating it just amongst ourselves, meaning the legal team and consultants, 
but we did not consult with probably the key constituency that was going to be using the solution, which were the users, i.e. our business partner, salespeople, whomever. So that was really a problem because we got pretty far along in the process before we started kind of sharing it with... Trying to map the tech to the users. Right. And it was problematic because we had what we thought was a good solution, but the users were not really loving it. And that was a problem given how far along we had been on the development process. So key lesson from that was not mapping it to the users and also not laying out what exactly a ideal outcome will look like for those who are going to be using solutions, not just for us who are creating the solution. The outcomes of the solutions. You and the team were possibly guessing, hypothesizing those outcomes, but not really testing them in discussion or more with your users. Right. Yeah. There were no kind of like focus groups or user testing at all, really. So was this a built or bought solution? So this was a built solution Oh, using an existing tech tool we had in place, which admittedly was probably not the best solution to use as the foundation for the tool, but we did so out of primarily budget concerns, really. Interesting. Well, it's not a bad idea when budget constraints exist to work with what you've got. Absolutely. I think there's a fine line between kind of using what you would have and buying something new, you kind of have to understand the capabilities of what you have and like what the outer limit of those capabilities are. And the problem is you need to figure that out one way or another before you make the call. Okay. So didn't map to users early on enough and didn't set outcomes to holistically drive this thing towards. What happened? It goes live, but I think you mentioned something about duct tape and a stick of gum and some, some magical IT people making it happen. Yeah, essentially it went live-ish. Ish. I'm going to say that to my general counsel coming up soon when my next go live gets delayed. I'm like, we're going live-ish. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's not my ideal situation. Yeah, we worked with the consultants and some IT folks to actually duct tape and gum it together and sort of work. The bright side of this failure is that taught me a lot about a lot of different things, including managing a project, including implementing something and creating tech solution, all of which that knowledge has really come into play later on in my career, but was really good for me to learn so early on, despite how stressful and how in some ways embarrassing it was that in fact that it didn't work out as anticipated. First job out of law school failing implementing contract management. I think you said your next solution was you quit Velcro soon thereafter. You're like, I'm (laughs) I'm out of here. This whole thing's burning. But interesting though, fast forward to where you are now. You work at Malbec. You are essentially evangelizing A, of course, the product, that legal tech startup you're at, which is like cool and a next generation solution, but B, evangelizing to your customers or future customers how to do this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Seared in your brain, the failure turns it into a career path. Everyone listening, write that down. It's very interesting to me. It's sometimes psychology is just so bizarre and paradoxical. Chad, Colin mentioned a zinger word in there. I want to ask you about, he said consultants. I thought you might tap into that with your consultants. Consultants. 
Lay it on me. Can consultants do this work for us in-house people? What's the extent we can leverage them? Is it a bad idea? Have you seen success with consultants? We have to think about this. Many of us are one-person shops for a while when we join legal ops or tech teams, and you need that kind of staffing. How have you used consultants in the past? I think you're so spot on in terms of what types of consultants, what do you need, what can they do? So the short answer is I wouldn't use a consultant for everything. I think it's like, what are you trying to do? You're trying to build strategy, you're trying to build engagement, you're trying to build operations. What do you have internally to bring to the table? Any of those things, all of those things, none of those things. So for me, when I was building out our legal tech, we were using our CRM tool and integrating it with a CLM on top of that for automated contracting for sales and account management. That was the primary goal. And at that time, middle of COVID, half our company was furloughed at the time. I'm the only lawyer that's left there. We have a CRM all-star, but you know, come from the CRM kind of marketing sales world. She's helping me with the CRM piece of it, but she had never done a legal tech implementation either. And so very quickly, I'm saying to myself, my skill set is going to be knowing this business, knowing the stakeholders, knowing what cares about them. I've got someone who knows our CRM tool, but I don't have the skills to operationalize that integration. And so where am I going to get it? And so for me, the answer was not like a big consulting firm for that particular project. I didn't really need the strategy and the engagement and the theories and the decks. I needed someone on the ground who understood our CRM tool and understood the CLM tool to actually be in there, in the sandbox environment, in the production environment, like pulling with the toggles and using his knowledge from his past experiences doing it to say, okay, now that you guys are giving me the color, I can help you actually build it. That was helpful to us and it worked pretty well. If anyone's wondering, let me fill in the alphabet soup blanks. CRM is customer relationship management. Is that it? Relational management, relationship management, CRM, a la a Salesforce tool, a deal intake tool, a very popular in ad sales. Most companies use some kind of CRM to track the literal actual Salesforce selling the widgets and the pricing and the quoting and tends to flow. And what we all work in is how do we connect deal system up to contract system? There tends to be an integration these days in a lot of companies, or at least that's our North Star and have that whole cycle flow through. So you took consultants, you leveraged consultants and gave them a very specific slice of the pie. And it was more the tech, operational tech inside the system maximizing the design in there as part of this rollout. The flow was the tech, the integration, where the fields are going to go, which object fields in Salesforce matter. How would they display when you use that integration? Like that real technical expertise, because that's very helpful if someone's done that before. If they're certified in your CRM, if they're certified in your CLM, that is real hands-on experience. And they may not know your business as inside out as you do, but that's the flavor you bring. And they can bring the many experiences they've had helping Velcro run it into the wall and resurrecting it or otherwise to say like, hey, the way you're trying to do that flow, it's not meant to do that. It's going to break or it's not going to scale or this is a better way. That was helpful for us. So where Colin talked about one of the big first fail points, engaging those users up front, selling, emotionally bringing them in. You didn't put a consultant there. Would you put a consultant there? No, no, for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, I like to do it. And it was always very important to me in my role to be doing that because that's how I believe I can find the most success. But also too, I'm not even sure that's possible. 
how can someone who's outside of your business really sell to the hearts and minds of the people in the business? For me, I think that's a hard one. I think they really need the flavor of someone who's inside to say like, totally get how you're selling that to that market segment. Our people care about this. Our clients are in this space. When I was at that tech company, our clients were in the live event space, venues, comedy clubs, theaters, like that sort of market segment thinks very differently than FinTech or something else. And so flavor in the story has to be really tight to who your users are. Otherwise, they don't care. They're not paying attention. Otherwise, they don't care. That's right. Tommy, are we the emotional salespeople? Do the in-house people have to sell it up front? Would you use a consultant? No, no. There is a time and a place for consultants. I think Chad is spot on with the narrative being in-house one, the people that are closest to it being able to speak to it. In this instance, I would absolutely let the in-house people be the salespeople in this instance. My first favorite topic is always failures. My next favorite topic we're going into is pain. Okay, so we're upfront with the users. We can't have consultants there. Colin missed this and that amazing fail story. Chad, back to you. Talk to me about pain and understanding your user's pain and how you go there. This is a part of the sell process. You have a lot of thoughts on this, on how to do this upfront and get those people mobilized around you. How do you get them to listen to you eventually with a CLM solution? So the way that I did it was, it was not about the legal team, the legal function or anything related to the law. Because I was in a high scaling growth tech company and like you're talking to sales and account management and they're just thinking like, you're there to do the contracts. Don't talk to me about that. So the way that I thought about it was, what do they care about in their daily life? So you think about a sales team. A lot of their comp is based on commission. They're operating in multiple jurisdictions, multiple time zones. They're remote workers. They're really relying upon their CRM tool to capture deals, sign contracts. Not only because it's important for quota, which is important for their job, but it's also how they make their money. The bread doesn't go on the table unless it all happens. So that's the lead end point that I thought about the sales team. And then on the account management team, which is a massive kind of revenue owner in a business, they care about not only just signing contracts, but the data of this growing client base. That's what they're judged on. How do you protect that data? How do you retain it? How do you grow it? How do you use it? And so then that was my angle with the account management team is like, how do you know who the clients are in order to make playbooks, in order to go after them and upsell, cross-sell? How do you do that? And so the thread that brings them both together was our CRM tool because they both should be, ought to be using it, capture data and sign deals. And so if you're speaking to where they live, then they're thinking to themselves, not sure why, but this lawyer is trying to help me get better at my job. And people start buying in and they're like, whatever it is you're selling, if you can actually deliver that, I'm in. And that was how we really opened the door to building it. So I hear a lot of getting to understand the minds and the desires, the drive inside account management sales. How do you get to know their hearts? Putting you on the spot here. Chad's like, that wasn't in. No, I mean, this is near dear to how I kind of operate in a business is that for me, the personal stories that you share with people and acknowledging them for their creation and their innovation is as important as anything else. So if I'm talking to a salesperson and they're coming off a difficult demo and the demo didn't go well because there was friction in the product, I'm just saying like, appreciate you. That is not easy to do. You are front lines with people you don't really know yet trying to sell something and you never know in a demo something could go wrong. That takes a lot. It takes a lot of humanity to do that. And so I think when you just show up that way, and it often starts in a work context, but they could move to learning stuff about them. They're interested in music. You're sharing Spotify playlists. Like it graduates. But 
I think seeing people for what they're creating and reflecting back to them the thoughts that are in your mind. That's not an easy job. Thank you for that. That's not easy. People, that resonates deeply. We are talking about CLM implementation. Remember, that was our topic. And right now, Chad is giving a dissertation on getting to know people's hearts, wants, desires, Spotify playlists, whatever the path is in so that you can bring them along on a journey later. I mean, I love this. We're two steps away from the meaning of life here. I hope we get there by the end. Tommy, does this resonate? Are you like with your stakeholders, with your legal department or your sales folks or your content folks getting to know their hearts more? Or are you just cranking on budgets all the time? No, no, you can't be cranking on budgets. But if you're talking about CLM, you best get to know who your influencers are. Here's why. Your salespeople, the ones that are out there doing it, working this machine, the loudest, the ones that bring money into your business, the ones that will have ears of people, you want those people to be your allies. You don't want them out there complaining that your CLM doesn't work. You want them going, you're my partner. I will get you to bring money in faster. You tell me what I need to do. And how do we get there? Chad's like, you get to know them. You make them a Spotify playlist. You tap in emotionally, these folks, but really... These are going to be your influencers. They're the ones that you're going to make your subject matter experts when you launch this thing. They're going to be there on launch day. They're going to be telling their friends how well this thing works. They're going to be your people that train trainers out in the business who go, this is how you use this thing. This is how you do it well. This is how we bring money in faster. This is how we close deals faster. So absolutely, you want to get to know these folks and they're going to be your people that help beyond you evangelizing it. They're going to then do it for you. Colin, you're on the other side now. Some call it the dark side. You're a vendor. I don't call it the dark side. I think we need to sunset that term, okay? You're just on the different seat in the ecosystem. How do you do this from your seat now? In your role, you were in-house once, you have a JD, fascinating. And now you're on the vendor side. How do you get to know people at the heart level? Are you going to make me a Spotify playlist? Absolutely. I can definitely make you a Spotify playlist. I think that a lot of what Chad and Tommy mentioned, quite frankly, are things that I would want to do on the vendor side as well, because at the end of the day, look, as a vendor, yes, we're trying to make sales. But the thing about selling legal tech in most cases is it's not just a one-off. It's not just kind of like buying a new computer, buying a new pair of headphones or what have you. It's not a transactional type of relationship. It's a ongoing partnership. And in order to achieve that kind of partnership, you have to really understand who it is you're partnering with and and by understanding kind of how they work, how they want to work, what kind of makes them tick, the more effective that partnership can be, which means that you kind of engage in this relationship building process, which is quite frankly, just learning about other people listening more than talking and understanding that change is hard and it takes time. So if you're going to try to engage with someone and get them to change, you have to kind of make it seem and get them to see it as something that they want to do, that they want to engage in this work, not that you are telling them they need to engage in this work. So I think something that a lot of salespeople, quite frankly, get a little wrong. They're getting it wrong. Can we talk about this? I think they're getting it wrong. Absolutely. I think they're just slamming my inbox all the time with boilerplate language. And I can't like just the mere presence of that in my inbox on the cold emails. Delete. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I was talking about this 
the other night at a work dinner and with a bunch of lawyers and they all perked up the minute I started talking about salespeople and getting those cold emails. And I agree with you. I think that they are getting it wrong because there is this tendency to kind of go in and say, hey, I see you work so-and-so and you do contracts or you do legal ops. Surely you need some way of managing those agreements. Well, guess what? I've got the perfect solution for you. And I'm like, how do you know that's a perfect solution for them? You know nothing about these people other than what it says in their LinkedIn profile, their Twitter handle. So got to go in and say, hey, I understand that you might have this problem. I'd love to learn more about exactly how you work. What's going on? Tell me what's going on in your world. I think I could possibly help you, but I want to know if I can help you. So tell me what's going on. And salespeople, I think, have a tendency to not want to engage in that and would much prefer to kind of just say, hey, I've got the perfect solution. Just say yes. And my job is done. That's really the opposite of what you need to do, I think, to be an effective seller in any space, but especially in legal tech. My favorite salespeople are the ones who don't talk and they just act like my friend. Exactly. And for some reason, when they don't talk and they just act like my friend and we're chit-chatting, I want to throw money at them. And it moves faster. It's like less info. And thank you, Malbec, for not spamming me, you guys. You guys win the prize of the day. I have no spam. It's not spam, but no cold emails in my inbox because I think you know you don't have to do that. You could just call me, Colin. You could just call us. But I guess that in the market, you might have to do that. So I appreciate the process, but I love salespeople that feel like friends. Yeah, I don't think I have any inbounds either, which I'm going to go ahead and agree. I'm going to double down on that. Thank you. But also, here's the salespeople I love. We're just chatting. You're like, what are you trying to fix? I'm downloading you on sort of makes me tick what keeps me up at night when I'm trying to fix And we start talking through it and then we get to a place where it's like, I might have a solve for you, right? Like that I have found to be the best formation of a relationship when a vendor is actually legitimately trying to talk you through something you're trying to solve and then positions themselves to help you. Talk less, listen more. We're now in a deep cut on sales and psychology and getting into the human behavior of people, which is so fascinating. We have to have all of these sharpened for these in-house legal roles, CLO roles, legal ops roles. Whoa, who knew? Did you guys know? I didn't know this when I started this career. I thought I would just slam tech into place and be like, bye. That's often how tech is, I think, positioned is that it just will certainly just work and your life will certainly be so much easier when anything really good and effective takes a lot of hard work and quite frankly, being okay with being uncomfortable, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Before we skate off into making business cases, one last thread on this. Why do lawyers hate CLMs? Do they hate CLMs? I've been picking up some signals in the world recently. And sometimes I wonder, is the CLM solution for my lawyers to use or is it to get them out of the way so they can go focus on new deal types, new language for new business, new markets? Is CLM for our contract management professional staff to elevate their game, their reporting, their expirations and running all the mechanics of. But I've heard from a few lawyers recently looking at high-end CLMs that will remain nameless, that they hate them. Why? Chad, start with you. I think one thing is, is that in law school, legal training, early days in the industry, crushed with knowledge learning. And somehow in the world of 
it depends being the running joke on answers is that we have this black and white thing of pretty good job or you're an idiot. And so there's so much pressure on the learning because you can never be wrong. You have to learn all of these things really quickly that I think when it gets to tech, a lot of people in their brain are like, do you know how much stuff I've already learned? And now you're telling me after all of the wordsmithing I had to learn, now I got to learn all this tech too. And it's going to happen really quickly. And I'm not going to have enough time and it's going to break. And when it breaks, I get in trouble. And they're kind of rehashing this fear journey they've just been on. They just got comfortable. And now it's like, hey, let's open up that wound. And they're like, eh, I never even put penicillin in there. So please don't. So I think that that's a big part of it is that like that failure and that relearning is like, I'm exhausted. And I think it hasn't been fed in the way of all of the positives. So all the talk about CLM is like, let me reduce this pain. I think the pain actually reignites this fear. Another version of it is, let me show you how much like a business function you can make this legal team and the power you can drive for this company. Interestingly, Chad, you are a person with a JD who went to law school. Colin, you have a JD, you went to law school. Why do lawyers hate this stuff? There is this inherent culture of perfection that is emphasized when you are learning how to be a lawyer and then when you become a lawyer. And so the thing about tech is, and Salem in particular, I think, is it's imperfect. It's not going to get everything right. And it's complex and it takes time and effort to get right and get set up. And for a lawyer, all of those things make it something that they potentially want to run away from and fear because it opens themselves up to potential failure. It requires potentially experimenting, entering the unknown. The unknown is not a comfortable area for a lawyer. A lawyer wants to be in an area where- It's not comfortable for people, period. Well, that's also absolutely true, for sure. And especially so for lawyers. So I wouldn't say that necessarily CLM is something that is hated by lawyers, but I do think that CLM, among many other areas within tech, is something that lawyers don't necessarily flock to and kind of are all gung-ho on. But I think they do, once they use a tool- realize its benefits and acknowledge its usefulness. But it takes some time and effort to get there from both a cultural perspective as well as a kind of just getting up to speed and getting going perspective. I have a theory that when we put in CLMs, our lawyers should never, ever come near them ever again. I learned this a few companies ago. We put a service layer around the entire CLM so that it almost didn't matter what CLM we put in. We made that design for us and the contract center of excellence team of 20 to 30 people who ran everything through the CLM, ensured the data was there, captured knowledge management points, maybe how did this deal differ from the standard T's and C's, boom. And everything was a ticketed service layer around. And it was pretty fascinating. The measurements you can put around that come more quickly. So that's just a hypothesis. I hope to one day drive what I'm working on now towards, but it's, I don't know, mixed bag. Tommy, you're looking at me like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? What do you think? Do you think CLM can just have a service moat around it and the drawbridge is only for you, the contract management professionals, the contract ops folks? I'm finding it inspirational, but maybe I just have a different experience. I think I have some lawyers who like, actually it's been radical for them because they went just from working on contracts in a Word doc. So for them, I actually know lawyers that love it and like have found it to be a time save, a value add. You got them out of the Word doc? Well, they still work in the Word doc. They pull it out 
of the CLM. They still work in the Word doc, but no, for some who went from zero to something, it's transformational. They love it. But we're going to have a round two on this moat you're putting around things because I'm digging this. Yeah, I think it's the future. Service layers around it. And let's do a part two on the moat and the castle that is CLM and the dragon that is a data. I don't know why I'm saying all of this. We should talk about data, but we should also talk about a business case. So we're on this emotional sales, getting to know your people as one of the biggest foundational elements you cannot skip in implementing CLM. Otherwise you wind up with something people will look at you and go, huh, you do what with that? Flip the script all the way to dollars and cents. How do we make a business case for this system, for this kind of solution? How do you write it down? Chad, where did you start drawing up the numbers here to show to leadership or finance or whomever to justify this? How do you convince yourself to spend whatever the cost is on this? Because they're not cheap. Well, I'm trying to get the most juice. I think this is pretty common in scaling tech, especially is where is the business paying attention? Not really paying attention to legal, they're paying attention to revenue opportunities for the meat of their client bases or they're trying to sell new revenue opportunities or the data that they're finally trying to organize and maximize. So that's where I put my energy behind a spend. So I try to stay away from, okay, this was 5,000 more and 5,000 less and maybe a lawyer. Okay. Not because there isn't logic there. It's because you don't have the right audience for it. The audience understands scale, revenue, signing contracts. That's as much contract talk as a lot of people want to do. And the aspirational use of data. And so I didn't really want to get into this one's 25,000, this one's 50,000, this one, I don't care. What I want to talk about is how do we attach ourselves to those goals so that we can hire more salespeople, they can sign more deals, the account management team can scale playbooks based on real data, not pretend Excel sheets. And the brand in the market feels more professional. Because what I would tell them is I used to be a buyer of a lot of tech. And when you get something that feels very professional and very slick, even through the contract cycle of the process, you have a lot more confidence in your vendor. And so that's where I attributed all of the sell. It wasn't around. This one is a 0.5 FTE lawyer contract professional. Nah, forget it. Nobody cares. I focused on the business aspirations. Aspirational use of data. Yes, yes. And my last CLM business case was mostly centered on that. I said, we have to go here. We have to go bigger here. We have to take a bet because the data it can yield is beyond our wildest control F dreams. Beyond. This is my latest slogan. Inside my current job, I say, control F, your days are numbered because it can chop this thing up. And if I had a nickel for every time a legal person in the United States hits control F today, I could retire today. You're all dying laughing. I could tell. I can tell. I just struck a chord. Wait till they get to replace all on the control find. And that is just. Malbec, you taking notes, product team? Replace control F, replace all, replace, replace all. And. You'll win. That Gartner chart will set on fire and you'll be at the top of the castle. The aspirational use of data. How else do you make a business case? Tommy, you've done these. What's your business case look like? Are you coming around sales revenue? Always sales, always revenue, always data integrity. You want to make a business case around the security, around building out knowledge management playbooks, about being able to iterate on contract language, which many of your litigation teams going to love. You can sell it to your M&A team when they want to do due diligence, things like that. So I think data, 
I think bringing money in the door faster and I think security are big themes to hit. Chad, tell us what you do with some of this data. I know you've turned some corners with the data in terms of new business and what can your business do with this data? Yeah, and I mean, this is where I think lawyers with a bit more capacity because they're not in the weeds on every single Word document because now you're using tech, you can actually open up your brain to actually doing the trusted advisor work instead of just telling people you're a trusted advisor. So ways you could do that is, for me, you partner with the head of finance. You now actually have real true data on your clients and you can run reports and slices pretty quickly on market vertical, size of client, how long they've been with you, what they spend, what their contract term is. Very, very small variables. And quickly, instead of anecdotes and feelings about what kind of market segment actually matters and is exploding or is deteriorating or is a cash cow, you just look at the data. And so I did this, so I had a finance and we ran five tiers of ARR or ACV and said like, okay, this is what they spent in these segments for this period of time. Interesting, no, there's this bucket here that is less attractive than we thought or more attractive than we thought. And now you're actually using the data, which came out of implementing legal tech. Not that I ever use that phrase because I don't want people to think it's a legal thing. It's a business case. It's a business tool. But when you drive it through your source of truth, whether that's Salesforce, whatever you use, that's how you actually use data to make real business cases that the C-suite wants to hear. You're not begging them to hear, begging to make a PPT for them. They actually want to do it because that's part of the strategy. Yes. PPT. Data for... Navigating into the unknown. What markets can we do business in? Where are we doing great business in? What are our opportunities? Huge. I don't think people are always thinking about CLM to do that kind of analysis. So really, really hot tips. Guys, let's bring it to our final topic thread here. Is this ever done? Is CLM ever done? I was just writing a newsletter update and sure, something went live, but my opening sentence was, it's never done. It's ongoing and it's iterative. And maybe that's why lawyers sometimes don't like this kind of a solution because they want stuff done. You know, they get to version things and then hit that period and go send for signature. And that is a point in time snapshot of the contract, the business terms and how the engagement goes. This thing's never done. Maybe we need to version out loud to lawyers. So we're like, this is version 17 of our CLM solution. Anyone ever feel like it was ever done? Nope. Every, everyone's saying no, no, it's never done. So get ready. When you implement these, it's like a child. You're responsible for that thing until you die. <laughs> CLMs are not crockpots. You don't just set them and forget them. <laughs> I think CLMs are never done because our business is never done, right? If business is done, then you don't have anything to do to support it. But as business evolves and as the needs of the organization change, you want to make sure you can pivot and change right alongside them. Yeah. And keep evolving. And I just wanted to just touch down on your metaphor there. It's actually the Ron Popeil rotisserie device that was set it and forget it. Crockpot's never had that slogan. Thank you. I'm an expert on infomercials of the 1990s. I'm sorry. Where in the recess of your brain did you hold that and why? Why did you hold that? The brain is a fascinating organ and I don't know how or why this stuff comes up, but I did my due diligence. I watched a lot of television in the 1990s. So I'll just leave it at that. Ron Popeil with those amazing teeth. You cannot set it and you cannot forget it with CLM. Possible episode title. We'll come back to that later. The business is never done and CLM should continually evolve. It's almost like when you go live, that's just the opening door. 
that's the birth and it's an ongoing thing and you want to keep shaping this thing to work. New contract types. I mean, who goes live with all their contract types at once? Answer, I've never seen that. There's so many contract types. So I'm always going live in tranches. Take a few, bring those business teams and legal teams in and then take the next few. I think when I started at Spotify, there was only NDAs. And when I left, we maybe had, I don't know, 150 of the 300 contract types. Now more online inside the CLM, but I never got it all the way. I pulled a Colin. I pieced out of there. You go live (laughs) with every contract type on day one. We'll have you back on for what happened when that failed. Yeah. Or you're the Messiah. If, if you don't fail at that, let us know. We'll learn from your masterclass. I totally will want to talk to you, but I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in terms of never done, and that's why I said earlier about how it's a long-term relationship that you are building when you are selling the COM and also after the purchase has completed because there is always more to do, whether it's more functionality, whether it's more contract types, whether it's business needs change. And so the solution needs to change with the business. And that's something that quite frankly, I think that some CL companies are getting better at and some are perhaps not as good as they want to be. And that's just part of, I think, the ongoing evolution of the space. And quite frankly, on a broader scale, the larger evolution of legal tech in general is evolving to meet the evolving needs of business. Because as we all know all too well, the world we live in is pretty remarkably dynamic one. Oh, good. I'm glad you said that. Because sometimes when people start a sentence with the world we live in, I wonder where we're going in that today's day and age. But it is. It's pretty dynamic. Tech is cool. And where is this all going to go? What are CLMs going to look like in two years, three years, five years? What's that Gartner curve going to look like? How many dots are going to get swallowed up by others? I think we rounded the corner of hype and We're going to see some really interesting innovation pushed at this point forward to just the market is just going to compete and push beyond what we even know. Data, data, data. Data, data, data. Back to the legal teams. You could put in your CRMs in a kind of a crude way. I've done that before. But I think giving data to the legal teams and the legal ops teams about how well it's working in like dashboard styles that business teams use, that's going to be magical because it's going to start making clear business cases for you. And you're going to be able to actually have reporting or goals and projections that actually work like a business team instead of the legal team always saying, but we're different and we don't really have KPIs and we don't have, well, now you will. And I think that's where the CLMs are going to go is they're just going to give you that because they're going to know the cycles. They're going to know the time. They're going to know the data. They're going to know the value. So I think that's where the magic has got to move at some point. Guys, failures, pain, swung by Velcro. Engaging with users, selling the psychology of selling, getting to know their hearts via Spotify, not Apple, playlist. Making a business case and flipping to the other side of your brain, measuring sales, revenue, and then data, data, data. This thing's never done. As Colin said, long-term relationship. So embrace it. Make sure you staff for this. This is the biggest rock in your jar, arguably, when you're in your strategy. Once you go live with this, now you have to take care of it forever and iterate. I love this. Yes, and I want to thank you all for coming on the podcast today, Colin, Chad, Tommy. This has been enlightening. I'll see you all out there soon. That about wraps up this episode of Clock Talk. Thank you to our co-host, Tommy, to Chad and Colin for sharing their failures and pretty good practices, or PGPs, around CLM readiness, and to Malbec for their sponsorship of this episode. 
You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time, 